0: Support for this podcast is made possible by you. Visit www.allgirlsconsider.org slash donate to help us build a better world of endless possibilities for girls.
1: My name is Ashley and I'm Nola Booth and we're here um, with the AGC podcast and we're recording Amberine Shaffee today.
2: Well, thank you for that introduction and thanks for having me here. Yeah. All Girls Considered is a really great organization. I'm really happy to be contributing. Could you tell us a bit
0: about your background and what it is you do as an, like, a lawyer?
2: Sure, I can start with that. So my background is I have an undergraduate degree in economics and international relations, Mm -hmm. and then I went on to pursue my law degree, so I did a JD, and then I went on to also do a master of laws, so that's called an LLM in international and comparative law. I want to say one quick thing that law and policy, I work on both law and policy, and yeah. a lot of lawyers do, um, but a lot of lawyers don't work on both. So, law is really a set of rules that's very predetermined and uh, straightforward, whereas, policy is more a set of guidelines for governing institutions. So, policy is framed in terms of goals and aspirations of things that governments want to achieve or institutions want to achieve. And laws are really framed in terms of justice. So I wanna say that first. Uh, That being said, I am an environmental lawyer by training Mm -hmm. and my global practice is focused on creating law. Mm -hmm. So creating the international agreements or treaties that multiple countries, and in some cases, every country in the world agree to, and then making that law work on the ground in the countries and communities that I serve. Mm -hmm. So for example, I worked on the Paris Agreement and a lesser known treaty called the Montreal Protocol and the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Mm -hmm. Protocol. And from there, my practice grew to implementing these treaties in major countries. And so when I say I worked on those agreements, I mean, I was in the room uh, itself as the representatives for these major countries actually debated and argued and wrote the details and finer points of those laws. And these countries continue to negotiate the treaties as part of their regular governance. And just like our government issues and then reviews laws domestically. So those two agreements that I spoke about really focus on climate uh, change mm-hmm. and um, uh, climate and the, and the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. However, I have also worked on energy law and policy uh, both in the United States and abroad. Um, so that's, that's, I think, answering your question. Yeah, <laughs> the two kind of relate. <laughs> yes. What
1: drew you to law as, as a child and as a kid? What made you want to do, go that? And like, more importantly, what drew you to the environmental side of it?
2: So I did not know I was going to become a lawyer. And even when I started law school, I didn't know I was going to practice law. So I, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that I knew anything about what I wanted to do. Um, my mother's a doctor and my father's an engineer mm-hmm. so I wanted to become a doctor but just because that I saw my mom and you know before I had really matured I, that's really what I thought I was going to do yeah. um, and then my first year of college was 2001 and so that was the uh, September 11th attacks occurred mm-hmm. and so then I saw everybody in my family and my community and everybody I held dear come under Um, attack from the media, from the government, from laws and policies and so Mm -hmm. I fundamentally changed the course of my life and my career Mm -hmm. and um, I you know I did a lot of work around women and microcredit And as I mentioned I studied economics and international relations Um, And my parents are from Pakistan, so I was always kind of this third culture kid. Like I had other cultures influencing me. I was traveling from a very, very young age.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And so, you know, as I started studying economics, that's really economics is just power systems and how Mm -hmm. the world works. Mm -hmm. And so in those traditional economic theories, I came across a lot of new and exciting work by mostly women about new ways of imagining the economy and new ways of thinking about Human development and tying success to human potential and happiness, and so at the same time I was organizing. So I was working with Amnesty International and Americans for Human Rights, and I was, you know, involved in a lot of grassroots organizing, and I saw the power of organizing to create change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had worked with lawyers in other countries, and was very inspired by them. Um, but they were all doing work with uh, women's empowerment. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. when I went to law school, I thought I was going to use my law degree to found a nonprofit. Um, but then I, I went into law and I saw how much it was influencing social justice and the issues I cared about. Mm-hmm. So then I, I kind of made this decision that I might practice law. Um, and then after law school, I got a scholarship to study in Egypt, mm-hmm. so I went mm-hmm. and I did my master's in international comparative law there. So it was still a very non-traditional path. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I didn't know I was going to do environmental law. I had all these different interests in women and social justice and, you know, community rights, and that was my framework for looking at a lot of things. And so when I came back, I got a job in an environmental law firm, and I didn't know whether I would like it. And then. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a really famous speech by Steve Jobs Mm -hmm. and um, I think he gives it at the commencement for Harvard or something and he says, you don't know how all the dots connect until you look back. And so environmental law really brought all of those things together, all of these Mm -hmm. ideas I had about women's rights and and minority rights and international justice, you know, suddenly Mm -hmm. found a home and everything made sense, Mm -hmm. you know. So, I would say it was a lot of hard work, but I, I didn't know how the dots were going to connect yeah. <laughs> at any yeah. given time. So,
1: yeah. You mentioned how your parents are from Pakistan and that you were kind of in the third culture. How was that like for you growing up? Did that affect anything work related today? Yeah, did it make it harder?
2: Harder, you mean harder to choose or harder to be in the future? Harder
1: of- to like succeed and
0: be in it, especially just because of how people react to diversity of things.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, for the first part of my life, I, you know, we were really involved in, we were, you know, when you're from another culture, but you grow up here, Mm -hmm. you're always translating, you -hmm. know, and I don't mean literally, although sometimes that happens, but you're always forming a bridge Mm
1: -hmm. between
2: the culture that you're immersed in and the one that your parents are from or that your community members are from. And so you're doing all this work, you know, in interfaith, you know, or multicultural work, even though at the time I didn't know what the word was for it. I was Mm -hmm. just doing it. Um, And we grew up going to houses of worship of, you know, our friends. So I grew up going to church and synagogue and the mosque and seeing kind of already I had a multifaceted view. So I think in that respect it helped. Uh, But then, like I mentioned, after September 11th, everything really shifted and instead of there just being a neutral level of ignorance there was an active of hostility mm-hmm. uh, against people who looked different than the dominant culture
1: yeah
2: i don't mean the majority culture because they're not in the majority but the dominant culture um and that made it really difficult you know mm-hmm. and i still i still most of the time when i'm in the room Um, Like next week, I'm going to Paris uh, to uh, be in a workshop by the Green that's being uh, run by the Green Climate Fund. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be one of the only young women in the room. Mm -hmm. I will be the only person who is in my age bracket Mm -hmm. who is female. I'll be the only minority, and I'll be one of the few Muslim women. Yeah. And that is very, very common in both in my domestic, you know, litigation that I do and in the global work that I do. And mm-hmm. a lot of times when there are women who look like me, they are taking notes um, and giving them to the men who are speaking or they are in the background. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think I think it's Audre Lorde who says, like, just your existence is, you know, a matter of of political um, you know, radical action. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, like, just being there in the room and just being who mm-hmm. I am, I think can help change people's minds and mm-hmm. help open their minds. Um, but I, I think I, what I navigate is very different mm-hmm. <laughs> than what my peers who are male or Caucasian navigate. And mm-hmm. I, so I think it's harder for me. Um,
0: I'm sure for the girls that,
2: like, the women who see you
0: there and are just, like, doing like the busy work are probably really encouraged by your presence.
2: Mm-hmm. I think so, You know, I talk to them a lot, they, mm-hmm. they ask me for advice and I try to mentor them, I go out of my way, I spend a lot of my time mentoring young women because mm-hmm. again, that's where I came from, that's my background You know, originally uh, in terms of my work but it's also, I, I don't know what else to do, I have to give them some time, I have to give them a perspective, mm-hmm. I have to tell them what I did to get here mm-hmm. and a lot of women did that for me, a lot of people did that for me. But I feel like if I don't say something, you know, what other what other model will they have? You know, so they do come to me and they ask me a lot of questions. I try to give them the best advice I can. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I try to encourage them to, to do things that scare them, because I think that that's the only way you're really going to. Get ahead. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I think that things that scare women in the workplace really don't scare men, and that's a lot of mm-hmm. times why they'll attempt something and just kind of stumble into success. Mm-hmm. So so I think that's hard, to, and it's, it's easier when you have support. Mm-hmm. I yes. try to be a support system.
1: Do you ever feel intimidated by being the only woman in the room?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, you know, I, so my father is a feminist. My mm-hmm. dad is was yeah. always just kind of the biggest cheerleader and my mm-hmm. biggest fan was always telling me like you're going to run for president someday. I mean, he just told me these things and I just believed them because when your dad tells you something at a very young age, you you don't have any other frame of reference to question mm-hmm. it. So I, you know, I felt like he didn't treat me any differently. I have two brothers and I don't have any sisters, um, so I felt comfortable being around men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I always had uncles and I didn't really have many many female cousins in my you know who were geographically close to me. So I I felt really comfortable around them. So I felt like Mm -hmm. I understood their psychology and I felt like I understood how to how people were gonna react to me and see me already. So I I can't say I felt weird about being different because I was always different. I grew up in Kansas, Mm -hmm. like I was always different. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think it can definitely feel intimidating when you have to speak up to somebody who's in a a higher position than you. So if someone's taking yeah. advantage yeah. of you, yeah. which has happened to me multiple times, uh, I found it particularly difficult to speak up um, and learn how to be assertive, you know, because I think sometimes if you're a female and you show that you're assertive or, or you know, you get labeled angry or something worse. Yeah, it's
1: always seen yeah. something
2: emotional, not mm-hmm. always And it's
1: like you're emotional, written. you're weak, nothing you're saying is making yeah, sense. Just like calm right. down, you'll get over it. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. So yeah, I think there's certain circumstances where I feel really intimidated mm-hmm. still. And I think it's completely, and I used to feel ashamed. I used to feel like I can't ever show weakness. I can't ever talk about it. But now I realize like the more I talk about it, the easier it gets. And the more people mm-hmm. rally behind me and work with yeah. me. So and more
1: support you'll get. You know,
2: yeah, why hide it? Why like it's not my fault that I'm intimidated. It's actually the creation, you know, of this idea of men being in power and that,
0: mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So when you're giving young women and like actually any women advice or any people, how do you think it affects like your? Does it ever make you realize something that you needed to tell yourself or like how does it affect you personally when you give people advice? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think so. I think a lot, because I think all of my advice comes from usually mistakes that I've made. Mm -hmm. Um, So like this one that I just mentioned about never feeling like I could admit when something was wrong or when I needed help, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing now that that was probably, you know, that didn't really serve me, that it was actually much more freeing and much easier to just talk about it. And so that I give people that advice all the time, I say, well, you should just name what you're feeling and what what's uncomfortable cuz putting words to something is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example. Um did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Did um you said that your dad was really an advocate for you. Would you say that's where you get most of your advice from is from looking back on things that he's told you when you were young and you were little and now you're using that to empower others?
2: I think so. So my dad is an engineer by training, Mm -hmm. um, but he opened his own business and was doing commercial air conditioning and heating all over the world. So he was the one traveling the world when I was growing up. So that had a huge influence on me wanting to have a global career. Yeah. And, and you know, for sure, the way he did business, you know, he was always telling me, "You have to be straightforward. You have to be honest. You know, you have to do what's right, no matter what, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it means you lose a job opportunity." That was a huge influence. But mm-hmm. you know, my mother was also a huge influence. So she is a doctor in a in a very male dominated uh, profession, and she runs her own business. So she runs her own practice. So I think the two of them owning their own business eventually empowered me to get my own business Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then my mom you know the reason why she formed her own practice is because she and another woman who was actually an immigrant from Poland Mm
0: -hmm.
2: had been working for these two older gentlemen who would not let them get ahead and you know they kind of formed this alliance and started voicing their own concerns about how this isn't really ever going to go anywhere if we don't mm-hmm. try and strike out on our own.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, I mean, I think that story really stuck with me, even though, you know, she didn't really, I, th- I don't think she told it in a manner um, intending for it to, you know, tell me that this is what you should do, but it really stuck with me that that affected my mother so much that she would open her own business. So,
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, I think they both did.
1: That's cool. Well, would you, uh, could you speak more about on you owning your own business and the struggles that you had just like as a female in general like in this in this profession i know that it can be really hard to get to where you've gone today and as many accomplishments as you've made yeah
2: so it, the question is challenges as a female mm-hmm. owning your own business there's a lot of challenges yeah. <laughs> yeah. so i think um <clears throat> a lot of times people still viewed me as a very junior uh as a very junior professional, even though I, I was a CEO of my company, and it, yeah. I kept telling myself, I had to keep telling myself, "I'm I'm a CEO. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to sort of act deferential in a meeting or something." Because um, it took me a long time to internalize that I was actually at that level. Yeah, like you're and in charge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time, and I talked to a lot of females who were either owning their own business or were at a much higher level than I was. Um, And I sort of studied the way that they acted in meetings. I studied the way that they wrote emails. Mm -hmm. Everything, every little thing that they did, you know, the tone of their words, the word choice, you know, all of it was a lesson. And so I really tried to get really close to my female mentors and learn how they were doing things, because many of them grew up in the 70s. When the first wave of Western feminism was yeah. you know starting, and they were a part of that, and so I think they had already learned some of the lessons that I was trying to learn myself, mm-hmm. so I tried to get as much information from them and figure out how they were doing things without without like imitating them because you still have to make it your own mm-hmm. but I definitely think that that their um, my alliances with them, my relationships with them helped a lot my you know, I looked mm-hmm. at my mother, I tried to talk to her about how she was struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, even just things like, I didn't have as much confidence handling money. Mm-hmm. I didn't have as much confidence um, bra- branding myself and bragging mm-hmm. about myself. Because mm-hmm. when you own your own business, you have to be out there and you have to talk about yourself in a certain way mm-hmm. yeah. to sell people on it. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, yeah. it's just like, culturally, that was really a foreign idea for me and I still have mm-hmm. trouble with that. So. So I think there was a lot of unlearning of bad habits, a lot of learning of good habits mm-hmm. and you know I think overcoming your own insecurities is a real challenge mm-hmm. no matter who you are. So that's just a lifelong journey. I think everybody's yeah. dealing with those.
0: <laughs> For sure.
2: So that's important. If being having your own business forces you to deal with your own insecurities more um aggressively because if you don't then the, it shows in everything you do mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. it's like you're on the height I used to be a diver so it's like you're on the diving board and you're always looking I mean you know you know that there's that there's that moment where you have to jump mm-hmm. you have to make a decision no matter what whether you're prepared or not whether you set up the dive right or not so I think in that sense it can feel more um it's more pressure to deal mm-hmm. with your insecurities more quickly. <laughs> yeah, so it's not a bad thing. It's just it was it's tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I would imagine so.
2: Um. So on a different
0: note, when you I read that you did like some work in Southern Asia with um women's economic justice. What sort of work were you doing with that? Like specifically.
2: So I was studying. That was. Um, in my undergraduate, I studied mm-hmm. economics and international relations, which mm-hmm. sounds like a very boring topic, but the reason I studied it is because I thought it was about power yeah. and how money and power works together to influence how the world works. So that's why I mm-hmm. studied it um, because I was, you know, in my free time, I was organizing and, you know, looking at how people deal with power um, and taking back their power. So kind of broadly, that's what I was interested in. So when I, I came across this term, called microcredit, which at the time, uh-huh. this gentleman named Muhammad Yunus had won the Nobel Peace Prize for economics. Um, and he's from Bangladesh for, for popularizing this term, this idea of microcredit through the Grameen Bank. Mm-hmm. And so microcredit is really simple. It sounds like a crazy term, but it's really, really simple. What it means is, you know, a lending institution will give small, tiny loans, microloans mm-hmm. to women Um, For them to start their own businesses and then over time the women will pay back these loans in small chunks Mm -hmm. That's all it is and and it's it's been around actually for long before Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank, but like I said he popularized it Mm -hmm. so So what was happening in Pakistan at the time because Bangladesh is very close to Pakistan so all over Southeast Asia microcredit was becoming a, it was a very very popular term that was something that all the mm-hmm. banks all the development banks wanted to get into um, it was it had this moment in the global spotlight because of the nobel prize and all of that so so i wanted to figure out how does that work because that's what i thought i was going to do i thought i was going to run some kind of nonprofit with women mm-hmm. so i went yeah. i went to pakistan and i stayed with my family in lahore And my aunt is a pediatrician, but um, she worked a lot with UNESCO and... um the UN uh, Children's Organization and UNHCR, so the refugees. I mean, she worked with basically all the good guys. (laughs) She worked with everyone who was trying to make a difference in the country. So Mm -hmm. people who are working in sustainable development, people who are working in women's empowerment, people who are working with children, people in the medical field. And she happened to have all these connections to female lawyers. Mm -hmm. So I started working with Pakistani lawyers. And at the time, and still... Pakistani female lawyers, and and the the bar over there, um, the bar I'm referring, that means all of lawyers um, who are licensed to practice law in Pakistan, they kind of are these community leaders that are, um, they're involved in the most fundamental aspects of social change in the Mm -hmm. country. So they're really like the Martin Luther King juniors in that country. They were leading all these incredible protests and you know, speaking out against the government when the government wasn't doing something right. So the bar was very active. Mm-hmm. So these female lawyers um, were, and they were also getting international recognition for their human rights work. Mm-hmm. I was just fascinated by them. I thought, how they're really doing what I want to do. And I didn't make the connection immediately that they were also lawyers because um, I was talking to them about the work they were doing with microcredit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So essentially what they were doing was these women would get these small loans, they would start little businesses making bracelets or sewing things or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had like something like a 98% success in terms of their payback rate. So it was incredibly popular. Oh, wow. And you know it goes back to this concept of, or this phrase that I think you probably know, which is a woman is a school. So as mm-hmm. soon as you empower women, as soon as you give them the means to lift themselves out of poverty and to give them individual mm-hmm. income, they start educating their children and their daughters. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So it just spreads. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was this whole idea that it would lift the health and wealth of the community, and it was. And so what happened was some of these women would be breaking with the norm and mm-hmm. obviously going out and owning their own business, and yeah. they would start getting death threats or they would be you know, harassed or, or, or worse in the course of trying mm-hmm. to you know, work. And so these lawyers would be defending them. So everything was kind of pulling me towards that area, Mm -hmm. even though I I had no idea I was going to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so I was working closely with these women, and I was doing my research on microcredit, but I was starting to – it was planting the seeds Mm -hmm. for me to become a lawyer. I saw the change they were making. I saw how much of a difference they could really make. I saw how um, the idea of organizing – Ties into advocacy, and I saw how mm-hmm. how they were literally advocates for these women, and that's mm-hmm. good lawyers are all advocates for their clients, so I thought that was pretty incredible, and that's kind of yeah, so that's what I did there and then you know I studied abroad in Mexico after that, and I looked at microcredit in Mexico, mm-hmm. so and I saw the same phenomenon, so I kind of you know at that point had two two really important experiences in two very different countries and mm-hmm. kind of the same theme mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah it's neat how cultures can kind of like echo the way they like
1: progress and just in slightly different ways yeah definitely so what drew you to being an advocate for the environment if you were really passionate about being an advocate for females
2: so uh as i was saying you know you kind of look back and all the dots connect so the 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 way that we are using the earth and so objectifying it destroying it using up all of its resources mm-hmm. is actually the parallel and exactly the same way that we treat women. Mm-hmm. So I the two so there's absolutely no way that you can positively affect the environment without tying it to women's empowerment. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like there are
1: <laughs> there are
2: sustainable <laughs> development goals. This, I don't know if you've heard of this, but the United Nations has come up with 17 sustainable development goals. So they're called mm-hmm. SDGs. Yeah. And it's, the, it's just a fancy way of saying where they, you know, the 17 areas they think they've got to make progress on in order mm-hmm. to help um, countries advance, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of them is gender. I think it's called gender equality. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the seventh or the eighth one out of 17. But if you look at all of the other set 16 goals, none of them can actually be achieved without women's empowerment so that's just one example so then we go to um this book called or this it's really a project now but it's based off this book called project drawdown Mm -hmm. so project drawdown is a a originally started as a book to rank the hundred top solutions to uh, global warming Mm -hmm. and it's ranked in terms using a very you know, straightforward, mathematical, pretty undisputed measure of how effective that particular strategy is. So it's ranked number one to 100. Mm-hmm. And so the number one solution is, is a really one that you might never guess, and it's refrigeration management. And it has to do, yeah, it has to do with... Um, this treaty that I was talking about, Montreal Protocol, yes. it has to do with the particular chemical that's used in your air conditioner or your refrigerator um, to, mm-hmm. to make things cold. So anyway, that you know can capture or remove um, up to I think it's 80 gigatons of carbon so, uh, carbon monog- carbon dioxide equivalent. <laughs> so oh yeah, f- wow. no, it's really interesting. It's really really interesting. And you didn't um, even expect it. Yeah, it's true. So, But see, within the top 10 solutions, there are two that relate to women's empowerment. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of them is family planning, and one of them is educating girls. That's I think yeah. those are the two. So if you add those two up, they actually far outweigh the number one solution. Mm-hmm. So just in terms of the numbers, there's two within the top 10 that relate to empowering women, and they far outweigh the, the number one solution. So, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that they're – there's no way to go about this job if you're trying to improve the environment, unless you're working, unless you understand that there that women are at the center of every solution. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the last thing I'll say about that is that you know a woman is a school, so women are actually the fastest. Um, they're the they're the earliest adopters of climate friendly technology, so they're yeah. the fastest to learn and sort of understand how to implement those solutions. And then um, they pass those new attitudes and habits onto the rest of the community and the next generation. Mm-hmm. So that fosters greater climate resilience. So there's, it's just, you can't, you just can't achieve your goals without it. You, mm-hmm. you can't really start if you don't start with that. Yeah. So that's kind of what I've seen. Um, and I would say too that I think my, I think my peers don't always understand that. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, a lot of what I do, you know, every day is to try and educate them mm-hmm. that this is, it doesn't really make sense to have a law or a policy that isn't centered on, on women. Mm-hmm. So that's been an interesting journey.
1: Yeah. Do you want to speak more on that journey?
2: Well, I mean, it, it comes down to, I, I mean, it. I think it comes down to how hard I'm willing to work and Mm -hmm. whether or not I'm willing to speak up every single time I think there's an opportunity to put women at the center of a of a policy or a project Mm -hmm. or a law Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just comes down to um, for me as an individual how I mean because sometimes you get tired sometimes you're hearing somebody talk about something and you're like Oh i you know I just don't if I have to start this whole thing I'm going to have to start all over again, explain it from the very beginning, and mm-hmm. you know take the time to 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 deal with the blowback and the pushback and then redesign everything so that women are at the center so you know I think it it requires a lot of daily renewal of what my commitment is to this mm-hmm. idea and why why I'm so committed so it takes it takes a lot of time, and I'm still trying to figure out how I can do it how I can do what I do better mm-hmm. with less yeah. effort, if that makes sense, so I, yeah. I wanna be more effective and do it on a larger scale more so efficient. that I, yeah, more efficiently, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know the answer, That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm working on it.
1: <laughs> Girls, I think based on time, probably two more questions including the wrap up. That's okay,
2: do. so okay. do you have any questions
1: for us <laughs> before we ask? <laughs>
2: I do I have any questions for you? Well, I'm interested to see where All Girls Considered goes. And I mean, I guess, I think one question I would have is do you feel like being a part of All Girls Considered is going to, do you think it's changed your mind about your life or your goals?
0: I don't think it's necessarily changed my mind, but I do definitely think that it's encouraged me
2: mm-hmm. with
0: things that I have been thinking about doing and making them feel more achievable yeah. or just Helping me in finding a way
2: to achieve them. Mm-hmm. That's awesome.
1: It hasn't really changed my idea on anything. Like I love, I love standing up for girls. I love standing up for women, and I love interviewing. So, I guess <laughs> the answer is no. So far, it hasn't really changed anything for me.
2: Good. Yeah. You're
1: yeah, Okay.
0: okay. I love to hear you. I yeah. mean, if anything, it's just helped us stay encouraged
2: and yeah. keep on going with mm-hmm. what we're doing mm-hmm, yeah that's great i'm so happy to hear that
1: okay. i think um knowing that um a, a lot of the people here are, our minds aren't changed about a lot of things i think that just goes to show that a lot of the people in this room right now are already like they already know what some of these women are preaching with like being strong and things like that mm-hmm. because those lessons are extremely important and it's great to hear those things so it's just super encouraging mm-hmm. to have those things cemented in our minds yeah mm-hmm. we're, we're already to being build yourself taught. up more that you
2: can excellent yeah i'm yeah. so happy to hear that <laughs> <laughs> okay we have a kind of we have a
0: serious question for you
1: okay extremely important <laughs> can serious. you
0: spell Chlorophore
2: fluorocarbons. <laughs> oh my <laughs> god. <laughs> if I get this wrong, my colleagues will. <laughs> me? I've never spelled it like out loud, but uh, yeah, obviously I write it all the time. You,
0: you can write H- it. H- in okay.
2: The... Yeah. C H L chlorophore fluorocarbons. C H L O. Why is it? Why is it so hard to do this on the spot? You no, don't say anything. <laughs> okay, C H L O R O F L O U R O C A R B O N S. I think that's right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. it's so hard to do. That on the was our spot. extra
1: credit question on our environmental <laughs> science quiz today. Was it really? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Wait, is
2: your environmental science class already teaching you about that? Yeah. Yeah. It? yeah. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't like in it. This that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, you should really read Project Drawdown we because
1: we we've definitely talked about. It. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. yeah, so that's why the number 1 solution is refrigeration management. Yeah. Yep. Because refrigeration and air conditioning uses Well, they used to use chlorofluorocarbons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why the Montreal Protocol was passed. And then I worked on the Kigali Amendment, which was passed in Rwanda, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: um, which adds hydrofluorocarbons, which is the new gas that's used in cooling. So I didn't know you knew all about this then. I wouldn't have breezed (laughs) by that part. So one of the biggest um, privileges in my life is to have worked on the Kigali Amendment. Mm -hmm. So the Kigali Amendment adds hydrofluorocarbons. So the whole idea behind hydrofluorocarbons are short-lived climate pollutants. Mm-hmm. Okay? So carbon dioxide stays in the or in the atmosphere for like 500 yeah. years. It takes forever oh, to okay. yeah. Hydrofluorocarbons have a half-life of like 15 years. Oh, wow. So that's why yeah, they're that short-lived. Clim- they're also mm-hmm. thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. Oh wow. So the thing is that if hydrofluorocarbons once you cut it out of the atmosphere, it's like slamming the brake because mm-hmm. you see the effect immediately. That's why it's so exciting. So when you, if you were to if, if the Kigali Amendment is implemented successfully, it can remove up to half degree Celsius of warming from the Earth's atmosphere. Oh wow! wow. So we're on track to like, uh, to to a four degree Celsius scenario. Like we're gonna exceed you know the warming by four degrees Celsius. Oh, so oh, if we goodness. remove hydrofluorocarbons, we can get up to half degree of warming taken out of our yeah, equation. Wow. If That's you combine it crazy. with energy efficiency, so increasing the equipment energy efficiency. You can double those benefits. Wow! So that's why the Kigali Amendment is really important. So yeah, that's I had no fantastic. idea you guys knew what that yes. was. Yes. I'm so excited. The bell, oh, sorry. Oh, the bell is okay. Okay. So, <laughs> I get I get really no, excited. No, it's okay. about it's okay. Kigali. That was yeah. really cool. Yeah. That was okay, fascinating. Cool.
0: Yeah.
1: We, we have need to ask our most but yeah. also have,
2: empowering women and girls can actually achieve more savings than that. I so that's so. I mean that's an interesting point. That's cool. Yeah.
1: yeah. This is our last question. Yes. It's, do you have any advice that you would give to girls listening to this podcast right now? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think the biggest thing you can do to be an advocate for environmental change if that's what you're interested in is to be an advocate for women. Um, I think that's the most uh, I think that's the most profound form of advocacy mm-hmm. and I think I would just encourage you to join me in in keeping that discussion going um, and I think the other thing, the other piece of advice that I always give to young women is stick together, mm-hmm. you know, stand up for each other and stick together, because um, there will be times where your family and your community and everyone else around you won't. So it's really important to have that, you know, mm-hmm. all together, like always feel like you can draw on each other and always be there for each other. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much, you so much so for having here. So it, was it was very, it, very fascinating. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having
0: me. Yeah.
1: this is awesome. You
2: all are already so empowered cold. enough. So <laughs> Yes, but the people who are listening yeah.
0: will benefit from yeah. it too. Yes, thanks yes. So, it thanks really a lot. Amazing. Thanks for
1: having so me. We're going to have to listen great. to this during Bye. Bye. our Bye. environmental Bye. science yes. class. Should.
2: <laughs> We've oh, should. I'm so glad you're learning about that. Yeah. That's so advanced. Yeah. I'm Kudos to your I teacher. Know. Your teacher's really good. She's <laughs> incredible. She's yeah. she's she seems like she knows so what she's so doing. So she what so she's going
1: to she she Oh, okay. Oh, oh, I think oh, that's awesome.
2: I'm so glad. Yeah. Well, I like such a hot so topic much. now, you know. I'm
1: taking two science classes with her right? Oh, that's yeah.
2: great. Um, and we might Yeah. She's really her
1: environment.
2: I mean, I feel like I want to know her. Oh, yeah. She's teaching about CFCs. I'm like, yes. Oh, yeah. She's environmental science. Oh, that's brilliant. going to come Oh, really? That's Wait. Oh, I'd love to ask her opinion on Brewer. I have no idea. Yeah. I won't. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, that's me. pretty cool. With my pen. Excuse me. That's okay. pretty cool. Hi.
1: Uh, my name is Shyla. I'm also in the LTO. That's awesome.
2: Um, we, we did, did this shirt today. Oh, thank yeah, you here so much. Street. This is so cool. I'll put these in my pocket. I'm Shiloh. Stickers. <laughs> <laughs> I love stickers. Hey, I, I'm just. I've been spreading the gospel about AGC. Yeah. I've been telling oh, all these Christians. So many people did not know about it. Yeah, yeah, I don't know why. It's less known. Well, thank
1: you. Than yeah, like but yeah I it is less known. Thank, thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much this thanks was so yeah, for having me. really very nice. I am so glad. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks my a lot. Back. Great. have a
2: lot. Sure, anytime. I feel like I'm going to need a more. more thank you so much. <laughs> stay <laughs> in touch. Um, Jamie has my email, so she does. stay in touch. Yeah, this is incredible. I'm so I'm so glad you got to yeah, interview yeah. me. It was fun. I was so I looking forward hi, to it. I texted hi. like 10 people about it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I put it out on my social media. I was Aww. like, look at this. Everyone's like, oh, okay, great. And I think this is pictures. your phone. Yeah, yeah. we took yeah.
1: pictures. So oh, good. Yeah.
0: You can support our work by donating at www.allgirlsconsidered.org
2: donate right now. We can't do this without you.